Good morning to all of you. Happy Fourth of July weekend. I hope you've had a great weekend with your family. I am Pastor Tim. I'm the executive pastor here at Grace Community Church. Pastor John had the week off, um, and so I have the great privilege of being able to bring the sermon to you this morning. We're going to um, look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 19. If you'd like to turn in your Bible um, to that passage, we'll get there in a moment. Um, before we get to that, though, I'd like to say a little something about this this weekend and Fourth of July. It's my personal opinion that we're losing some of the history in our in our great country, and I'd like to remind us of a few things. This Fourth of July weekend is actually the weekend that we commemorate the anniversary of our nation's birth, celebrates the approval of the Declaration of Independence. July Fourth commemorates the day the thirteen colonies announced that they were free from British rule. <clears throat> the document wasn't actually ready until July 8th, and it was read for the first time publicly on July 8th, and we heard these very famous words, which are just a portion of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It was on July 8th when the uh, Declaration of Independence was read for the first time that the Liberty Bell was rang for the first time. Um, you may know that on the Liberty Bell is inscribed these words, proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof, which is an actual quote from Leviticus 25.10. It's a portion of Leviticus 25.10 and Clearly, from the very beginning of our nation, we were, we were uh, created as a nation under God. Uh, our founding fathers believed in, a, in our God, and, and uh, we were founded on, those, on the precepts of the Word of God. You know, a nation can de declare itself free, but the truth is we, freedom will always be under attack, and freedom always has been under attack. Our nation has always been at war. I did a little bit of research. Since the American Revolution and the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the Declaration that we are free, we have always been at war in conflict of some, some kind. Did you know that we were at war since the American Revolution with France, Morocco, Algiers, Tunis, Tripoli, Great Britain again, which I think is interesting, especially on this weekend, which is the conclusion of Wimbledon, and you know, England is such a wonderful ally of ours now, it's hard to believe being at war with them. Mexico and Spain, uh, we didn't have just war from without, we had war from within. We called it the Civil War, it was the battle between the Union and Confederate, Confederacy. And then, of course, as you come into more modern-day World War I and II, we, we were at war with Germany, Italy, and Austria, and add Japan to those nations for World War II. There was the Korean War the Vietnam War, conflicts in Cuba, Grenada, Panama, Iraq, Bosnia, and of course a new, uh, really wasn't new, but I think it became very real to us, this art of warfare that is called terrorism in September 11, 2001, and since 2001 we've been battling Al-Qaeda and terrorism in a variety of nations, Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Libya, Mali, Somalia, Pakistan, and there's probably more. Freedom is not free. That was coined 
for the first time by U.S. Air Force retired Colonel Walter Hitchcock. Uh, that statement is some, states that freedom is something that needs to be protected, appreciated, and never taken for granted. When he, Colonel Hitchcock, made that declaration, it's on the Korean War Memorial, by the way, which you see before you. The saying is often used to express gratitude and convey respect specifically to those who have given their lives and fought in the defense of freedom and for our personal rights. Freedom is not free, and we should never take it for granted. So I want to take a moment before I go any further. Um, I would ask you to hold your applause, but we'd like to take just a moment to, to recognize those who have fought, are fighting, or have served to protect our freedoms. If you, and again, please hold your applause, if you have been, if you are currently in the military, if you have fought in the military or been in the military in the past, if you are part of our military, would you please stand at this time? And the reason I asked you to hold your applause is because I feel like fighting for freedom is, we are so grateful for those in our military, but fighting for freedom is not something that just happens, you know, for the military. We have men and women that are fighting on the front lines all the time to protect our freedom. So we want to take a moment, and I realize I may be leaving somebody out, but uh, we want to take a moment to recognize those who are on the front lines in our country fighting um, in law enforcement. So if you are currently in law enforcement or have been in law enforcement in the past, would you please stand at this time because you are on the front lines fighting for us as well. God bless you all. Would you please give your gratitude to these people. We do not take our freedom for granted, and we are grateful for you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to now show you a slide that I'm a little nervous to show you because I know some of the hot buttons behind it, but I hope you will trust me enough to, to uh, bear with me on this. Um, you see before you the peace symbol, and you know I grew up in the early days of my Christianity where people were nervous about the peace symbol because they thought it was an upside-down cross. I'm not here to debate that today, um, but I am sensitive to that, to that particular issue. But I put it before you because I see the peace symbol all the time, and what it stands for is that we hope for peace. And who would not hope for peace? I see this slogan, fairly regular, war is not the answer. And I understand uh, some, of the, some of the issues behind the slogan, but I mean, who among us would, would not want to have war? We don't want to be at war, and we want peace. But I show these to you because when I see the, this symbol and when I see this slogan, I, in my head goes off, but it'll never happen. On this side of heaven, we will never have peace. On this side of heaven, we will never be outside the bounds of war because we live in a world that is infected by sin. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We will always be at war in one form or another. Someone this last week said, Tim, you didn't serve in the military. And I said, no, I didn't. I just actually missed it. In 1971, I was uh, 17 years old, and my draft number was number one. 
I would have certainly, if I was 18, I would have been uh, drafted into the Vietnam War in 1972. We still had the draft, and I did register for the draft, um, but they weren't taking anybody at that point. They were bringing people out, so I never had the opportunity to serve in the military, although I would fight, and I think you would too, if called upon. But I, but I bring that up to tell you that um, we are going to always be at war, and you know, physical death from war is tragic. I throw these pictures up, to, up there just to give you a picture of that. But spiritual death from war is even more tragic. And we are in a conflict. And when, when this person asked me, Tim, you, you've never served, I, I said, no, I haven't in the military. But we are all serving in the front lines of a battle that is raging around us all the time. It's a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Warfare is very real to all of us, and we are in a battle. And as I think about warfare, I think about, I've spent some time this week thinking about tactics that are used in warfare, and there are a lot of very effective tactics, but one that I think is most effective, maybe not most effective, but certainly one of the most effective, and that is this thing we call infiltration. And you know what infiltration is. It's a method of attack where a, a force tries to get in behind enemy lines in a kind of a covert way, maybe tries to get within the, the, this, the community of their enemies so that they can attack from within. And I bring that up because um, the text that we're going to look at today speaks of this. I think Jesus speaks of this, and it is going to lead us into a discussion or a sermon that I think is applicable for us on this 4th of July weekend. I want you to know that I am probably going to come back to this text at, a, at, a, at another time. I'm not going to say everything that could be said about this text, but I'm going to use it to jump off into a talk, topic that is applicable for today. Let's read Matthew 7, 15 to 20. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. I'm just going to point out three things about this, this text. I'm going to give you an assumption that's in the text, a warning that's in the text, and a test that's in the text. The assumption is this. We will be infiltrated. We will be infiltrated. Matthew 7.15 says, watch out for false prophets. In warning us about false prophets, obviously Jesus is stating that there are false prophets or infiltrators, if you will, to be aware of. Certainly. Why would he warn us if that wasn't um, something we needed to worry about? If you read Matthew chapter 24, you will find out as well that these infiltrators, these false prophets, um, will increase as we get closer to the end of time. It is an assumption that's there. There's also a warning that's in the text. 
These infiltrators, these false prophets, if you will, are both deceptive and dangerous. Watch out for false prophets, the Matthew 7.15 says, and the second half of that says, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. They are deceptive because they are disguised like sheep. That's the metaphor that's used. They aren't recognized for who they are initially. If you take it beyond the metaphor, I would say they look like us. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of a false prophet. Maybe you think of some evil guy that's very easy to spot. Maybe you think of some TV evangelist with weird hair that says things that you obviously know are not true, and you know right off he's preaching baloney. But that's not what the text is teaching us. The text text is teaching us that we do not recognize them initially. And in fact, they may be attractive to us. This is why, by the way, it's so important to be in a good church where you have leaders that watch over the teaching of the Word because one of the major um, responsibilities of the pastor is, and the leaders of the church is to protect the church from false teachings and false teachers. So know that initially we need to be on guard because they are deceptive. It takes time sometimes to see the heart of a person. And they are dangerous because, following the metaphor, they are wolves within the flock, if you will. When a wolf gets into a flock and makes himself known, I think, I like to watch animal shows. Nat Geo Wild is like, you know, one of my shows. I like to watch lions sneaking into a herd of buffalo. And they, and they don't know they're there. And, but then when the lion jumps up, the, the, the buffalo scatter, right? Because they're going to kill the buffalo. That's the kind of metaphor we're getting here. They, they scatter the flock. False prophets are those who aren't of the Lord and who create division in the flock of God. They cause grumbling. They cause complaining and division. And these wolves like a wolf inside of a flock, has no concern for the flock itself. They only care about themselves and what they want. And what they want is to go after the things of God. Then there is a test. The Bible doesn't leave us with just an assumption and a warning. It gives us a test or a way to spot these false prophets. These infiltrators are spotted by how they live their lives. Jesus says in verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown away. Verse 20, by their fruit you will recognize them. The truth is that sooner or later, everyone will be known by how they live their life. Now hear that. Everyone will be known by how they live their life. A false prophet may speak and be attractive, but if you watch them long enough, they will expose what they really believe, and that is true for us. Everyone is known, not by what they say, but how they live their life. Now, there are two realities that I think are problems for us today, and these two realities I could take out of this text The first reality is this, 
Not only will we be infiltrated, we have been infiltrated. Infiltration is a reality for our life. Think about our nation, for example. When you read the Pledge of Allegiance, it says that we are one nation under God. Obviously, we were created as a nation to follow the precepts of the Word of God. If you look at our money, on the back of every piece of money, it says, in God we trust. We are a nation, we are a godly Christian nation, but we have been infiltrated. I can give you um, five examples of how we've been infiltrated as a nation. The first, we no longer as a nation value the sanctity of life. I'm talking about life of the unborn. Millions of babies are aborted every year. Now, as I bring that up, it makes me very nervous because I want you to catch what I'm saying here because I know there's got to be people in this congregation that that is, has been an issue for them. I'm so glad that Jesus died on the cross to forgive us. But I'm not talking to you as individuals. I'm saying that as a nation, we have endorsed this. We have been infiltrated, if you will. Secondly, as a nation, we have redefined the human person. Oh, by the way, abortion has snuck into the church. Secondly, we have redefined the human person, the gender identity issues we have, the things we're teaching our children. As a nation, we've been infiltrated with these false teachings. We have redefined marriage in our nation. In fact, we've almost eliminated marriage. And you think that hasn't snuck into the church? It's nothing for people, even believers, to live together and to act as married people before they are married. Did you know as a nation, we are not the number one consumer, but we are the number one producer of pornography in America, I mean in in the world. Number one producer. And by the way, when I say we're the number one producer of pornography, I'm talking about legal pornography, which sounds like an oxymoron to me, but there is illegal pornography. We are the number one producer of legal pornography um, in the world. And that's snuck into the church, hasn't it? I remember going to a Promise Keepers convention, and it was reported at that convention that one of the hotels, um, remember godly people coming together for a Promise Keepers Convention, and certainly they're not all godly people, but many Christians, and one hotel reported that they had the highest sales of pornography, pornographic movies in their hotel that week than they have ever had in the history of the hotel. That's scary. So we have redefined the human person. We have redefined what life is. We have redefined marriage. And therefore, the fifth thing, we've redefined as a nation who God is. We have been infiltrated. And that infiltration has come into the church. There's a second reality, and I've already mentioned it, but I want to drive it home a little bit further. Every person is exposed by their lifestyle. That is a reality. Now, you've heard the term, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. 80% of Americans still claim to be believers, Christians. 
And obviously that is not true because if 80% of Americans were Christians, we'd live in a very different country. And I think one of the greatest deceptions of the day that has snuck into the church is in relation to this. It's in relation to what it is to be a Christian. And here's what we are taught. Give your life to Jesus, confess Him as Lord, and you are a believer. Now that's true. It is true. The Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you would confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That is true, but here's the deception. The deception or the, the infiltration into the church is that that's all you have to do. And that is so untrue because the Bible teaches if you give your life to Jesus Christ, you will be changed. It's found in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. If a person truly gives their life to Jesus Christ, they can say they love Jesus, but if their life is not changed, they are exposed. Everyone is exposed by how they live their life. We are not exposed by what we say. What we say may not be who we really are. So we have a problem. Infiltration has, we've infiltrated, our, our nation has been infiltrated and our church has been in, the church has been infiltrated. We have a problem. And I, I think, I have an answer, I think, an answer for the problem, and I think it's taught throughout Scripture, and that is this. The only way to attack the darkness in this world, to attack this problem, is to be a light in the darkness. Okay. In other words, live your life for Jesus. That's what I'm saying. Call me stupid. Really. Call me crazy. Call me naive. Call me that within, within arm's length. I'm kidding. But do you know I actually believe, I actually believe, and I think some of you believe this as well, I actually believe that it if a person would live their life for Jesus, God will use that to make a difference. You know, it's overwhelming when you look at the problems in the country. I haven't even really brought up politics, and, and I don't want to. And don't come and talk to me about it, because I'm sick of hearing about it, frankly. But I mean, I'm sick of voting on something and having it repealed, or having it switched. I mean, there's so many things that could be said that, that are frustrating, now, the problem seems overwhelming to the point that it's like, what are you going to do? Live your life for Jesus. Because as the world gets darker, if you live your life for Jesus, you shine all the more. <clears throat> so I would ask you, as we are going to take communion here in just a moment, what is your fruit? What is your life? Are you tasty to people? Or are you just a thorn bush that everyone wants to avoid? I think we need to pay attention to how we live our lives. I want to share with you something that was developed many years ago by myself and a buddy. Um, we had the opportunity to stay in a, we called it the bungalow. It was a, a little building or a little room that Paul and Lynn Olson had by their pool, and they let us use that, and we crawled into that place for I don't know, several weeks, and we wanted to develop something that we could give to students. It was for beach camp that could give them a way to, 
kind of evaluate or to know how to live their lives for Jesus. And I know some of you know the GROW principle, but you know, there's a lot of people away today, but you aren't here by chance. And if you listen, it might just be that the Lord wants to speak to you today and wants to use you in special ways where you are at in this world. And so I'm going to share with you the GROW principle. If you've heard it before, try to hear it for the first time. The GROW is an acronym. Each letter reminds us of a question that we ask ourselves to help us to know how to make decisions and how to live our life. It's an evaluator of our lives, if you will. The first one is, does it glorify God? The G, does it glorify God? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, I'm under the impression that people don't really understand that. I know some people, when they think that God should be glorified, they almost get this impression of God in heaven wanting all his people to come around and tell him how good he is. You know, there's kind of an arrogance behind that idea of, you know, it's almost like God's this arrogant, you know, being that just wants us all to tell him how good he is. Well, you know, frankly, we should be telling him how good he is because he's pretty good. I mean, he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. I'm thankful for that, aren't you? But that's not really this whole idea of glory. In fact, glory in the original language meant heavy or weighty. It had to do with being significant. Um, We aren't to take God lightly, but it also means to elevate or to give credit to. So when when you put it together, to glorify God means that we give a right impression of who He is. When we speak of Him as we live our lives, our lives give a right impression, rightly communicates who God is. You can relate to that if you have children. If you're in a public setting and your children are around, you realize that your children give an idea of people, or at least you feel this way, they give an idea to people of who you are. Well, that's kind of what this is like. We are to live in such a way that everything that we do, we are to give a right picture of who God is. As people who claim the name of Christ, we are representatives of the Lord. Not for the Lord, of the Lord. In other words, if we claim the name of Christ, when people look at us, they ought to get a picture in some way of who God is. I'm going to give you a couple of examples to help you to think through this. Does your life give glory to God? Do do people look at you? Do they see who God is? Think about social media. I hate social media. I'm that close to getting rid of my Facebook. And then I go back and forth because in some way I love it. Because I love looking at pictures. I love looking at you know, pictures of children, and, and I love being able to keep up with family that's on the other side of the country, and I like all that. But some of the postings I see from godly people who claim to know the Lord is so frustrating. It's like, you really think that gives credit or glory to the Lord when you post stuff like that? You know, we are speaking when we're posting things on social media. So jumping off of that, does your language... This is what we ought to be thinking about. Does your language or the words that come out of your mouth give a right impression of who God is? Are you attractive to people or are you just someone that everybody wants to avoid? Do you give glory to God or not? Here's a couple of passages to think about. 
Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Proverbs 20.19 says, A gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid a man who talks too much. I mentioned politics. I didn't say this in the first service because I just forgot. Maybe I forgot. Maybe the Lord made me forget it. But, you know, I, I, I really struggle with what's going on in government, but I struggle more with people bashing our government leaders on Facebook because I think it's wrong. I think we ought to have submission for authorities because it's biblical. And I actually defriend people if I see it too much because it just discourages me. But it doesn't matter if I'm your friend or not. What does matter is the people that are looking. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. I think we need to pay attention to what we're doing. I hold a lot of the same views, by the way, of people that post things, but I'm not going to post them because I want people to see that I love the Lord, and I think you want that as well. The R stands for, uh-oh, the R stands for, is it right? 2 Corinthians 8.21 says, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. What that means is, is we need to pay attention to our reputation. We need to pay attention to what others think of us. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. We live in a licentious society that has lost its innocence and its modesty. And so often we get caught up in all of that. A couple of passages for you to think through. 1 Corinthians 6.12, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. 1 Corinthians 8, 9 says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Ephesians 5, 18 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So often people ask me, I don't know why. <laughs> Tim, what do you think about alcohol? Well, I hate it because I was mastered by it, and I grew up with an alcoholic father. I hate it. Well, do you think it's wrong? You know, when I get asked that question, I think I'm talking to somebody that wants to justify their actions. That's what I think. Don't talk to an alcohol, someone who's been an alcoholic about whether or not it's right to drink. It's not wrong to drink. But I think we ought to be thinking about people that are watching us. And I think so often we get too close to the line, we overindulge. I was told once that I was, back when I was in youth ministry, that the reason I didn't get invited to a get-together was because there was going to be alcohol there. I'm not God. I don't, people don't answer to me, but should that not tell them? If you don't want somebody there because you're going to have alcohol, there, there must be something inside of you that's starting to, you know, push your conscience a little bit. I don't want to be in a picture with a bunch of alcohol around, whether I drink it or not, because I don't want people to get a wrong picture of who God is. Romans 14, 19 to 21 says, Let us therefore make every effort to do 
what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink or wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. I think that we ought to think about that when we do the things we do. The O stands for, is there an act of obedience involved? Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Notice it doesn't say, he who says he loves me, loves me. Because what a person says is not what's really true. What they do is what is really true. And the Bible says, if you love, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. The world might say that because we are in love, it's okay. But we don't have that luxury. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. We might say, I love someone and I want to be with them, and it's okay because everybody else is doing it, but God does not say it's okay. There's an act of obedience involved there. And by the way, the world will tell you that everything's okay. But among you, now hear this passage, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality, any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. It's not saying that you are committing these. It says that you shouldn't even have a hint of it. I use Christine DeHaan, who's on our staff. Her family was in the first service as an example here. We have an ethic on our staff, and that is I'm, I'm really good friends with Christine and her husband, Eric. Their families are friends with our family. My wife and I have done things with Christine and Eric, but I would never go to lunch alone with Christine because you think something might happen. No. Not at all, because we're concerned that someone else might think something is going on. If a woman comes to my house and my wife's not home, I will not bring her into the house because something might happen. No, come on, because I'm too afraid that maybe one of my neighbors might see that woman coming in and my wife's not there and they may think something. I want to give a right impression of who God is. I wouldn't travel with someone of the opposite sex. I will not do any, you know, I wouldn't have a roommate of the opposite sex. Well, I do. It's my wife. But you know what I mean. Because it's not that we're doing anything wrong. It's that we're concerned about what others might think of us. And we could go on and on and on. Finally, the W. Does it violate my witness? 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Now hear this. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. In other words, we do things the right way. If we tell someone we're going to be someplace, we're there. If we give someone our word, we keep it. We are people of ethics. We pay attention that everything we do gives a picture of who God is, either in a right way or a wrong way. And when people see you, do they see God or do they just see another person going through the motions of life that everybody else is going through? One of the greatest, one of the, I think one of the greatest commands in Scripture, it's not even really referred to as a command. We call it the Great Commission. 
Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. The command is to go and make disciples. To not only talk about who God is, but to give a right picture of who God is through your life so that others will be attracted to the life-saving news of Jesus Christ. Someone once told me it does no good to talk if no one's listening. And if we live our lives, if we say one thing and live our lives in a different way, you know what that, you know what we're referred to as? Hypocrites. And if we tell people about Jesus, but we live our life in a totally different way, why would they want Jesus? Because we're just like everybody else. I'm kind of glad we're taking communion today because communion is a time to really reflect. And before we take communion, I'm going to tell you one quick story, and then I'm going to give you some time to think and talk to the Lord. Several years ago, quite a few years ago, everything's quite a few years ago anymore, it seems like. Quite a few years ago, I was asked by a church in the community to... Um, if I could come over and help them because they were going through a struggle. I asked Grace Community if I could spend some time with them. They gave me the freedom to do that, and I did some consulting with them. Um, boy, they had problems, and they were just, frankly, unwilling to really follow the Lord. Good people, but they just were unwilling to follow the Lord. And I did everything I could for them, and then I was, then I, you know, I left them to their own, you know, gave them some things to think through and left them to do whatever they were going to do. Well, it wasn't too long after I had spent, I think it was a whole summer with them actually, um, in the evenings, that they, I got a call from one of these guys, and he and another guy in the church wanted to um, meet with me and wanted to take me to dinner. I said, okay. So they came over to Larry. We met to have dinner together. And ultimately, long story short, they asked me if I would be their pastor because they needed a pastor. Their, mass, their last pastor had committed adultery. That's how I got involved in it in the first place. And so they asked me if I would be their pastor. And they, sa and they said to me, listen, Grace Community's got all kinds of good pastors. They don't need you. You know what? That's probably true, frankly. I don't think anybody is indisposable, if you will. We've got a lot of great pastors here. It's true Grace Community didn't need me. Um, but I said, no. And they said, why? I said, because you don't really want a pastor. You want someone just to kind of maintain what you've got there. And I don't want to be a maintenance pastor. You just want someone to take care of those 15 families that are part of the church. You don't really want to take the gospel to the world. Can you imagine that in, in a restaurant? <laughs> and they looked at me and they said, yeah, we do. I said, no, you don't. So until you, until you want that, you're never going to get a, a good pastor. I don't want to be maintenance guy. I don't want to just live life, you know, be married, raise children, do a job, you know, raise, have grandchildren, and then die and go to be with Jesus forever. Well, I do want to be with Jesus forever. But I don't want to just maintain. I want to make a difference for the kingdom, don't you? Well, then we ought to pay attention to how we're living our lives because we can make a difference in this world. So I'm going to take a moment to have us be quiet before the Lord. I'm going to let you bow and talk to the Lord. And one of the things we don't do in this in this country anymore as believers, we don't confess our sins. 
Maybe privately you need to confess your sins before the Lord before you proclaim that you're a believer by taking communion. Let's pray.